idea that you carry the seeds of your own destruction around with you always and that they can erupt at any time is a little is scarier because it's there is no defense against it there is no escape from it and uh, i find it scary one aspect of body horror is that i'm just constantly horrified when people talk about my body to me personally i bartend so i'm you know i'm kind of in the forefront i'm behind the bar people are staring at me to get drinks or maybe just staring at me i don't know but the amount of times that people just think it's okay to, whether it's a compliment or not, to talk about my body, tell me I look good, how I'm thick, I'm assuming with two C's. Um, <laughs> and it's just so exhausting. I, you know, I wear a crop top and it's like, oh my God, you're so brave. Oh my God, that's, I could never wear something like that. And I'm like, well, why, why not? What's different about my body? than anyone else that's wearing a crop top. My sisters are stick thin, so I've always been like, you know, the fat one, quote unquote. And that's never been in style until very recently. And so my whole life I was just told, lose weight, you know. Well, maybe you don't need to eat that, you know, just constantly from my family or whoever the fuck thought they needed to say something like that to me. Luckily we're in a time, you know, bless up Lizzo, thank you, where thick bodies are, like, regarded as, you know, don't be ashamed of your, of your body, like, all that stuff, but now it's, it's to a different extent, where it doesn't matter if I'm big or thin, people just need to tell me about what they think about it, and I'm just, I'm fucking over it. So this body horror, this, <laughs> this week brought up a lot of feelings. I can imagine, as a bartender, it's probably every single day. It's constant. Be, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. Some sort of comment, and oftentimes, like you were saying, yeah. I'm sure it's probably meant as a quote-unquote compliment. Sure. Well, I, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I get that list. I'm fat now, and I, I've been fat and skinny, like, my whole life back and forth a number of times. And, uh, you know, you get to a point where, you know, it's a constant thing. And I, I can relate to that. Like, everybody is always judging everybody by how fat or thin they mm -hmm. are. I, mm -hmm. I don't care if it's male, female, whatever. Like, that's an ever-present thing. Yeah. You see someone, people are just evaluating all the time yeah. their physical mm -hmm. appearance. Uh, and there's a real freedom in stopping caring, mm -hmm. you know, about that. But mm -hmm. it's hard just being reminded constantly. But, like, I've recently lost some weight which is great, like it's not like it's been, you know, a vendetta of me to get, you know, thin or anything like that, but I was like, well, maybe people will stop, you know, talking about my body Thinking to me now. Thinking they can just give nope. you a tip every time they come yeah. and order a beer. Sure. sure. They're like, Kat, oh, you look great. You should wear tight clothes more often. What, I love, you, you what, this is great. And I'm just like, I'm literally never gonna, I'm just gonna quit. Like this pizza is way better than what you think. Yeah. Fuck, food's good. Yeah. That's the truth. That's the truth. I'm fucking over it. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. Tonight we're talking about body horror, and it's recently been brought to my attention that um, a lot of people don't know what body horror is. Um, it is a very important and a very wide subgenre of the horror film. Uh, generally, body horror means something to do with the physical human body. Horror movie history, if you go like way back to the 50s and 60s, is is pretty rife with an older version of body horror, which would be like Wolfman, Frankenstein, 
you know, that kind of thing. But in, in the 70s, as, as horror was redefined broadly and is commonly thought of as new horror, that would start about 1969, 1970. Um, body horror was also redefined, and it became more personal. That's where David Cronenberg comes in and, and a lot of the other stuff that we're going to talk about tonight. I mean, it goes back to carnival tents and the freak shows and geek shows and uh, people that had deformities or they had a bizarre skill, you know, that could be monetized. And I, th I think you have a mix of, you know, people that were happy to have the opportunity to be paid for their, uh, their body horror and people that were sort of exploited for it. Um, Kat, we watched a bunch of body horror movies and, and not to jump right into them, but uh, how familiar were you with the body horror subgenre uh, before I, this? Apparently not very well versed in it. Um, I had never seen a couple of these movies, um, so it was a lot of squealing on my part, just a lot of watching <laughs> through my fingers kind of situation. Um, I like to think I have like a strong stomach and all that stuff, but it was a lot. But, but I like body horror. But you now. you weren't familiar with the idea of body horror. No, I had never at all until this. You no, were when you blissfully guys, unaware that there would be horror involved in the human body that someone might experience. Yeah, when you guys brought up body horror as a genre, I was like, I have no idea what that is. And then, but then <laughs> you know, we brought up the fly and like. You know, the thing which I had never seen. Oh. And it was a magical it was a magical moment for me and my television wow. this past week. I'm envious. I yeah. I actually didn't know what body horror was either until you guys hit me up. I when Dave was like, Do you want to come on to the show and talk about we're gonna do a body horror episode? I was like, Sounds good, man, and like totally like Googled. I was like, What yeah. the hell is body horror? And yeah, it was totally the subgenre is new to me. So this is Jay Brown here, our guest today, our first guest on Speak All Evil. Welcome, Jay Brown. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. And he's a filmmaker, co-owner of a creative production company, Rove, scribble of animation, and old guy on a skateboard. That's pretty much it. That's good. And a husband. I feel like that's, you know, probably pretty high up on the priority list there, but. Are we talked about body horror being like getting old, you know, I was a in utero model oh. early on. Yeah, all those. Yeah. Whenever you watch a movie and you see like the the ultrasound, that's me. That's that Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How many people don't know that? Yeah. True. No, like, but no, but, but seriously, getting old. Uh, that's traumatizing. Is. We, it is. It's traumatizing. Everybody chose a body horror movie. Um, we watched uh, an American Werewolf in London. We watched Black Swan. We watched The Thing. And we watched Raw, all very uh, sturdily in the body horror subgenre, in my opinion. Um, Jay, The Thing is one of your favorite movies, or maybe your favorite movie. It's one of mine. It's probably my favorite movie ever. I mean, I feel like it's a everything from the score to Kurt Russell at his finest as an iconic actor to playing with the sci-fi horror genre and having it revolve around paranoia and doing it so well. It's one of the movies that I often revisit and watch every so often. And I still 
enjoy it just as much as I saw it the first time. Well, you and I talked about that for a minute earlier, that The Thing is one of the few movies that I will rewatch like every two years. And to me, it just gets better and better. Uh, there's there's more stuff that I notice every time. And it's it's so claustrophobic and it's so paranoid. And it really gets into this idea of who can you trust right. and who can you not. So, so The Thing is actually based on a 1938 book by John W. Campbell Jr. called Who Goes There? And then there was actually a previous movie in 1951 called The Thing from Another World. But we're talking about the 1982 John Carpenter version. Um, and recently it actually came out that they're going to be redoing The Thing because the author of Who Goes There, they just discovered – another book that he had written or or extra content that had never been found called Frozen Hell. So right now there's actually a remake of the thing coming into production, but they want they're not calling it a remake. They're basically saying we're just starting this whole thing over because we found extra content from the actual original author. Um but the movie is basically to to sort of set the scene, it is a bunch of scientists, American scientists in Antarctica who discover a Norwegian base that is close by that has been completely decimated. And what they discover is the Norwegians found a spaceship that has been frozen in the ice for tens of thousands of years. They unearthed something, and it's it's this uh, living organism that has the ability to replicate things that it comes in contact with. Uh, another thing, if I can just chime in here, about the thing that I, I've always been drawn to, and I don't know if it's because... I grew up in New England, but in a situation in harsh winters, dealing with harsh, cold, winter, blizzard, frozen conditions, it's, I feel like there's not that many movies that are set in that scene because coming from a filmmaking perspective, it's a shitty situation. Can I swear? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a <laughs> it's a shitty situation to have to put it's up with. Fucking shitty. It sucks. It sucks. And so like that I mean you touched on it. It's like that that also plays into the the claustrophobic aspect of it all. It's like we not only is there this creature here that's replicating everyone around us and we don't know who to trust, but like also we can't run. We need to stay inside because it's below freezing outside and, and there's nowhere to go. And that I feel like that's obviously on an, uh, a much smaller scale. That's kind of the reality we live in here where it's like sometimes there's those days where it's like you got to hunker down and stay inside. There's multiple points in the movie where they say to each other, like, it's going to be mi like minus 100 out here in just a minute. You know, and, and one thing about these isolation movies when they're like held in cold places, I'm always like, how that like there's scenes in that where Kurt Russell's just like standing outside his shack with a bottle of like J and B and like with just like a shirt on. Relatable. And I'm like, dude, like, come on. Cat, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I noticed there was no women in the thing. Yeah, it was cast. something literally yeah. no ladies at all. We were going to yeah. do that for the Speak All Evil podcast. And then Trent was like, <laughs> this isn't a bro fest. We're going to get Cat in, in on this. And I felt like he was like affirming to himself, like, it's not a bro fest. Because we've been like texting for five years about <laughs> horror movies, the three of us. And then you came in and you were a perfect fit. Thank you. I'm glad this is not the thing. Me too. Me in more ways than one. Of yeah. females. That is the one downfall to the thing. 
I, go ahead I wonder and say, how the dynamic would change because I noticed that because it was all mm-hmm. you know men scientists cooks whatever. But I was kind of trying to figure out like how the dynamic would change if like a woman was in there. Would she be the first one that everyone suspects, or would she uh, be the last person that everyone she would suspects? Be the logic. It would be over in like twenty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good like, point. Yeah. The blood test would have happened way, way earlier. Yeah. It's so it wouldn't have been like ah, what's going on? It's Let's turn around with flamethrowers. It's like all right, let's get a blood test going and figure out what the hell's going on. That to me is the chest bursting scene from Alien. That that mm. scene in the thing is that the the blood test scene where you're just like this is a masterful it's almost like the uh, show me your scar scene from Jaws or something right I love that whole sequence I mean the chest scene in the thing itself like that whole scene they actually hired a double amputee I see. <laughs> Damn, I didn't pull what? off that part where he, he goes to arms. do the defibrillator and, re- and hit the yep. chest opens up and eats his arms oh off. God. They hired somebody that doesn't have arms. I, I also want to say that like uh, it's a staple in practical effects. I feel like there's in newer horror and not just horror, any any movie. We, a lot of people default to CGI, which is understandable because technology is just amazing now, and like what can be done digitally is is unbelievable. And I'm not, I don't want to come across like I'm harping on CGI because I've definitely seen a bunch of great movies that have really well done CGI sequences. But there's something to be said about practical effects, and the thing is like at its peak, like at practical effects peak, I feel like it's done so well and it's so believable because those things that you're seeing in the movie, again, coming from a filmmaking perspective, they're actually there. That's not like, okay, act to a green screen or pretend this thing is there. It's like that spider thing out of someone's head crawling around on the floor, that's really there. So it's, yeah. it's, Terrifying. I'm sure that was terrifying. It looked much better than like the spider thing that manifested in It Chapter Two. Yes, mm. I haven't seen that yet. It's well, not good. It was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hated it. I hated It too. I did. I like the first one. Bad, but bad. Um, we're gonna do like a an indie episode coming up where I'd like to get into like exactly what goes into some of these effects. So like a lot of you know. Jello and KY juice. jelly. And the thing, it was KY jelly. Huh. Really? Yeah, like apparently they use like gallons and gallons of it for like I believe the news it. and like all that stuff. Yeah. So so the thing was actually a guy named Rob Botton did all of the practical effects and he did all of that. And he got so exhausted that he had to leave the shoot and go to the hospital. He had like an ulcer and all these health problems because he was killing himself making these effects. So at the end of the shoot, Stan Winston actually came in and is completely uncredited. He refused to take credit for finishing all the effects because he thought it was Rob Botton's film. And to bring it all back to the movies we're talking about, Stan Winston is known for Aliens, Predator, uh, Edward Scissorhands. It's Stan Winston. You guys fucking know who he is. But he actually, if you watch the very end of the thing, they thank him, but he never actually takes an official credit. You're an amazing wealth of knowledge. I mean, I know you all know this, but wow. Wow, I love this. We were asked this question. How do you deal with a know-it-all effectively? Number one is... Number two... And the third, they may really have some information that they want to make sure we avoid a mistake, and so they want us to avoid repeating history. (laughs) So what's funny about the, the legacy of the thing is that when it came out, it bombed. And it was literally, it was panned by critics. Roger Ebert hated it. Um, 
it was called by this magazine that went from like 1967 to like 2006 or something, Cinefastique or something, called the most hated movie of all time. It was um, a huge flop. It was a for mass- John Carpenter. massive flop. Who's coming off Carpenter. Halloween I've and the fog. Heard this before as well. Um, and it's just funny to see as the years go by. Like you rewatched it recently, Trent, for the first time in quite a few years, and it just gets better with every watch. But at the time, it was considered an absolute disaster. Huh. And it also came out, I think, I think two weeks after E.T. Oh, uh, okay. Um, well, that says a lot. Yeah, so you're talking about like this massively huge family-friendly alien movie and then Carpenter drops like the thing on you which is the most depressing and like we talked about Jay, isolating movie. Fuck yeah, Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> um, Do it. But it also got uh, it got a hard R rating. But then like just shortly after Poltergeist comes out and Poltergeist was rated fucking PG. Yeah, and the guy rips his face off and <laughs> yeah. all that. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, my mom could have taken me to see Poltergeist when I was three years old or whatever. Mm. But the thing gets this hard R rating. Um, but yeah, it, it literally was considered one of the worst movies of all time. I feel like ratings, the, the, the desirable rating has changed over time. I remember hearing something about uh, like a while ago about a movie trying to get a PG-13 rating so more people could go to the theater to see it. But now – Streaming culture obviously is like everything. And it's like TV mature, or right? Like everything exactly. is these weird. So ratings. people want the. I would assume people want the higher the, the ratings that are gonna hit the R. It's kind so. of a constant tension with new horror movies, like, and that's one of the weird like litmus tests when something is announced is like, what's the rating? Because if it's PG thirteen, it must be. You know, teeny bopper fair. Right. There isn't enough yeah. gore for the gore hounds, right. and you know, this is some kind of um, you know very lightweight thing. Right. And, and if it's R, then oh, they must be really serious about it at this point. Who chose the movie Raw? That would be me, that was Kevin. You. Raw is a French horror film, a body horror film that was one of my favorite uh, horror films of the last few years. I'm the biggest fan of realism in horror movies, like, and I, all the effects in this are just so cringy and so real. Mm-hmm. I also like a lot of the imagery with their. So it's basically a vegetarian goes to a veterinary school where there's extreme hazing uh, by the upperclassmen, and they're also learning how to like perform surgery on horses. So there's all this like crazy epic imagery of like horses being hoisted up onto a thing or being cut open. I think it's easily one of the best horror movies of the past ten years. And no surprise that it's French because they know how to do horror. But uh, Kat, you hadn't seen this movie until today, right? Yeah, I watched it you today. Watched it today? <laughs> Let's hear it. Oh, I want to hear it. So I want to hear it. Um, so this was a hard one for me to get through. I didn't really know much about it. It was, you know, I only heard good things from you guys, how it was, you know, the greatest horror film recently, like in the past 10 years. I'm like, okay, let's do it. Um, but there's a lot of like eating disorder things in it. Um, So it was just like that aspect was a little hard for me to get through. Um, 
once it gets to like the cannibalism stuff is when I was like on board, ready to go. But just like the fact that they're talking about like body image, like added into that, like was another aspect of body horror that I don't think the other films kind of touched on. So it's like, you know, like a coming of age tale. When, for when this what woman. do you mean about talking about uh, body image? So there's like that scene when she goes to the doctor because she's got that rash. And that doctor tells that weird story about how she just had a patient come in and no other doctors would take blood from her because she was overweight. Mm. And she right. was like crying and right. breaking down because, you know, she, she just wanted to, as the doctor said, be average. And she had never felt like human kindness, apparently, from anyone. Um, so that I felt like that was kind of a preliminary, like, setup to what the main character was going to go through. That actress, oh my god, mm. she was awesome. Mm. Very good. Mm. Um, what was her name? I'll uh, butcher it. Garance Marillier. I would say I didn't good say job, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Garance yeah. Marillier. I saw her in a, uh, there's a Netflix, like, detective show called, like, Adam. Ad vitam or something like that. Oh yeah, that she's mm-hmm. that she's in that I. And then her show. her sister starts to talk about well, you can be anorexic or you can just accept that you're going to eat people for the rest of your life. I read some articles about it afterwards to try to like figure out what has been going on for the past you know hour and a half. <laughs> and, uh, the best thing I I saw was uh, she was taking ownership of her body by consuming others, and I was like, okay, I I love. French people, because of how blunt they are always. Mm-hmm. I would love to go to a French doctor. They'd be like, you're fat, you eat too much, that's why, you're ugly, you, you need to stop it. You yeah. know, like, have I a need a French doctor. Here's a cigarette, it'll suppress your appetite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, li- I love your take on this, cat, and I was dying to hear your take, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of feminist... Uh, over and undertones, I think, in this movie, mm-hmm. and ones that I definitely was not prepared to talk on yeah. uh, intelligently this evening. <laughs> so uh, I thank you for that. And, you know, we're going from The Thing, which was universally hated when it came out, to Raw, which was, in my opinion, probably overhyped. Um, but one thing coming out of the Toronto International Film Festival is when they first screened this movie, they actually had. Uh, emergency medical vehicles on site because people were allegedly fainting. I mean, it's not during the high, first that's viewing. Of, that's, like, I think that's just fake. I, I just hype. I don't think that's. I don't think you can really fake that in the year like 2016. You I mean, you could send premiering some. at a film festival in France and you have an ambulance outside. <laughs> it's good copy. Mm, okay. I don't know if I've ever squirmed more than the waxing scene. <laughs> that I don't even have a vagina, yeah, yeah. and I was like, "Oh my god, my vagina is throbbing!" <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I thought when uh, she she comes to the one of these sisters because it is about a pair of sisters. Um, one of the sisters has passed out, having chopped her own finger off accidentally. Mm-hmm. And when she comes to, her sister is eating her chopped off finger. <laughs> it tastes like she curry. Sees when she wakes up, it's and like she totally yeah. just brushes it off. Like, eh. it's a great movie. I loved it. Cat, uh, your pick was an American Werewolf in London, which mm-hmm. I haven't seen end to end well over twenty years. I forgot a lot about it. It's um, a, it's um, who's the uh, filmmaker? John Landis. John Landis, yeah, right? Animal so, House guy, right? 
right, Animal House, <laughs> and then Blues American Brothers. Werewolf in London, right? Yeah. Blues Brothers. So it's kind of a, a horror comedy. Uh, yeah. But we're, you're a little bit young to come up with that recommendation. I wondered how you, <laughs> how you, how, how did you come up with this? Um, that's kind of where my brain goes to. Like as soon, you know, we were talking about body horror, and I was like, oh. You know, there's that transformation scene. That's like the epitome oh, of so you know. Good. It's yeah. just like so much the noises, like the skin, like peeling and all that. Look, like, ugh. Just like thinking about it. You know me. I love horror comedies. So, bring yeah. It back. I was thinking that it's like a horror comedy, but there's not really anything funny in it. It just stays light kind of yeah. the whole time. I think the funniest Beacon. part is the soundtrack where everything's just like like Blue Moon plays constantly yeah, or like, you know, yeah, CCR. Just just like, and his friend yeah. like that, visiting him. That was my yeah. favorite part. Yeah. And I so, thought that but was But it wasn't funny. comedic. It was... Kind of was. It was, light. Just it was light. I thought, I thought the movie theater scene was pretty comedic. Like that couple like talking about all the different ways that like he could kill himself. <laughs> That's the end of the movie. He ends up in a porno theater. Mm -hmm. uh, John Landis actually shot that porno as well. Oh. Oh. So if you notice really? the subway scene, huh. it's newsflash. I've never seen this movie before. Oh, really? Never this in your life. This is the first life. time I'd ever, like seen, ever seen an American, American Werewolf in, in London. Did you like it? I loved it. And I'd seen the transformation scene because it's iconic. Mm -hmm. So obviously I'd seen that in probably like horror rundown countdowns. But if you look at the subway scene, um, the guy that he kills in the subway – stops and he's in front of this huge poster that says nonstop orgy and has all these naked people on it. And I was like, I paused the movie and did, you know, like Trent, you were talking about the 10 second back. I was like, why is there this giant like porno poster in a subway? Like, this is so weird. Well, that is the theater in the movie he ends up at at the end of the film. And Landis, because he wanted it to be authentic, actually filmed the porno movie as well and dropped it into the movie. Uh, my, my favorite thing about the whole movie and I thought it was comedic, but also like hurtful, maybe. Um, I didn't. I forgot that a lot of the movie is his dead friend, who was killed by the werewolf early on, keeps showing up in uh, progressively decomposed states mm -hmm. and telling him to kill himself. <laughs> like every time the guy wakes <laughs> up from a nap, his dead friend is there saying, "You have to kill yourself." Because they're in purgatory until the yes. bloodline is ended. They have to end it. So all he, you know, thinks about is that he needs to kill himself. So, Jay Brown, you've not seen this movie, right? No. This Tell is us the a one little bit about it. <laughs> I have nothing to say. It's it's the one out of the four movies on the list that I haven't seen. Have you, you ever woken it. up you and thought it. that the best thing to do would be to kill yourself? <laughs> Not lately. So Never. Lucky. Not lately. Yeah. No. 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 Can't say I have. Probably one of the. I mean. For as old as I am and how many horror movies I've seen. I can't believe you've never I, I was, seen this. In 2020, I was watching American Werewolf in, in London. And Edgar Wright has mentioned that this was one of his biggest inspirations. So as someone that has seen Shaun of the Dead four million times, I appreciated every moment of an American Werewolf in London in 2020, fully knowing now that Edgar Wright basically used that as the template for Shaun of the Dead, which I on, honestly find infinitely more funny. Um, but another interesting thing about American Werewolf in London is the, the MPAA was actually pushing for it to be rated NC-17 really? or X at the time. So John Landis actually had to cut a bunch of stuff out to get it to an R rating. So again, think about this. Poltergeist was rated PG and the MPAA wanted to make American Werewolf in London X. 
because it must have been way more hot. Uh, he wanted to increase the sex scene big time um, when David and the nurse finally hook up. Alex. Uh, and there was a bunch of uh, gore that he left out. Like his buddy Jack that keeps showing up. There was like really gory stuff he wanted to do with that. And in fact, one of his biggest regrets is that he feels like he let the transformation scene go on too long because he was so enamored with how it all went. This was the first uh, the first movie to win an Oscar for uh, makeup. Mm-hmm. It was the first cat. It was the, the first time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a remake of this that is now stuck in limbo. Woo! Because Max a, Landis, John Landis' son. I love Development Hell. Yeah. Limbo is is an ironic term for this movie because it's about you know all these people that are stuck in limbo, mm-hmm. purgatory. Yeah, so uh, John Landis' son, Max Landis, has been working on a remake of this. But in 2017, he was outed. Um, for all kinds of sexual misconduct. Mm-hmm. And now it's completely held. No one will touch this guy. Sounds like there's a very good reason <laughs> for it. But uh, just one last fun fact. Michael Jackson loved this movie so much that he tapped Rick Baker and John Landis to do the Thriller video. And those are the people that gave you the greatest music video of all time. Wow. wow. Interesting. Dropping bombs. <laughs> <laughs> because, see, there's two types of know-it-alls. There's the people that think they do, and the people that really do. So our next uh, movie I picked for body horror was Black Swan, uh, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love it. Yeah, you won this week. So good. I think that Black Swan is one of the greatest horror movies ever made. I would put it with Dawn of the Dead, uh, Romero. I would put it with... Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I would put it with Evil Dead 1 and 2. I think that it is absolutely an instant classic. I feel like it's kind of Fight Club-esque. I, I've always, like, the big reveal at the end of the two being, yes. you know, I feel like that's yes. a very Fight Club moment. Was that Cronenberg? Or was that... Oh, Fight Club was uh, David Fincher. David yes. Fincher. Fincher. Okay. Right. But it is because the whole time you're watching the movie, there's two characters. Mm-hmm. But at the end, you realize there was just one character. Exactly. exactly. She owns it so hard. Like She's like purring at the end. Like, Hotter in the Oscars. Natalie Portman won Best Actress. Nice. Uh, for what? Did she win? Black Swan. Oh, she did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She won. Black Swan really? was nominated for five Academy Awards. It was like Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay. See, that was before best like I mean, um, was... elevated horror, quote unquote, prestige horror. That was before it was a fad. This is 10 years ago. Yeah, it was, it was just called a good movie. Aronofsky uh, and Vincent Cassell. I cannot. He's one of my favorite actors ever. Yeah. I love Vincent Cassell, um, and he's great in this. Yeah, Dave and I have talked about him a lot. He's, I forgot that he was even in it. Oh, he's, he's the what man. else has I mean, he been in? Irreversible. Uh, yeah, he was in Shaitan. Irreversible. Um, he Eastern was, Promises. He was in, uh, he's done a couple Cronenberg movies. Yeah, he was in a a, a French miniseries called. Marine, which is about uh, this like gangster guy who like breaks out of prison. It's very good. He, he's kind of one of those uh, character actors that sort of goes a little bit under the radar and just has built a body of work of incredible performances in a lot of these movies that it's not a household name. People don't say, oh, Vincent Cassel, I love him. Uh, this is another movie that was compared to Polanski. So to go back to Rosemary's Baby. Uh, that's what I was thinking about when <clears throat> I was, watched it. Yes. So Natalie Portman compared it to Rosemary's Baby and Polanski, but Aronofsky actually compared it to 
uh, earlier Polanski works and said that that's where he got his inspiration for this movie. Um, and this was tied up in development hell for a long time. No studio would touch this movie. Uh, and it wasn't until Natalie Portman uh, attached herself as the lead actress that studios actually started to take it seriously and pick it up. No kidding. Did not know that. Wow. Um, it, I mean, to me, like, I loved it at the time I saw it in the theater. I think I went twice, actually. But, you know, over 10 years, you forget. And watching it again now, I, I was like, this is just phenomenal. And it made me, it, we were arguing about uh, Rosemary's Baby already. Um, there sure was a, were. W- there was another movie that we talked about that I thought it was similar to that I can't recall. Oh, Suspiria. It was compared to Suspiria. Similar, that was, I think that came up as well. Uh, similarly minded to Rosemary's Baby or Suspiria, but it's so much better. I would be embarrassed if I made one of those movies and then I saw Black Swan. Mm. I really like the dynamic of like a, a horror movie in the arena of you know of the ballet. I think that not um, a lot of people would necessarily immediately think body horror. When they think Black Swan, but the whole movie from the feet, the ballerina's feet, the fingernails, the black feathers that are, are coming out of her. And even where at the end where it gets to you're wondering who is who and what she's seeing. To me, quintessential body horror. She's pulling feathers out of her back and we don't even know if that's real or not. But Well, girls that do point, I mean, that's real. Like that whole like deformed toes and blood and all that stuff, like wrapping your feet up. That's all real. You know, that's that actually happens to people. That could have been The Fly. That could have been any body horror movie. And to me, that that is sort of what anchors the movie is that sort of questioning that, you know, the character is questioning what's going on. You're questioning what's going on. Her body is not in her control at that point. I thought it was the most body horror. I mean, that like watching her stand up on her toes like that, or like when her nail comes off of like one mm-hmm, of her toes. Mm-hmm. Um, what stuck out for me the most, I would say, was just how severely mentally ill that Natalie Portman's character was. Um, she seemed, you know, stuck in like a childlike state. You know, she lives with her mom. She calls her mom mommy whenever someone refers to their parents <laughs> as mommy or daddy. I cringe. Well, past a certain age. Oh, yes, sure. She's once you're not a child anymore. Um, But and then there's that moment where her mom, you know, sees the you know feathers coming out of her back, and she's like, "Have you been scratching again?" So that kind of alludes to you know something along the lines of like being mentally ill and not being able to control things. You know, scratching your body. Obviously, there's eating disorders happening at ballerinas. You know, in the New York ballet, because you have to be so tiny. Um, so that's really what creeped me out the most. And then, you know, at the end you find out, yeah, she's fucking crazy. <laughs> you know? See, I didn't think that, like, to me, I didn't think she was that crazy. I thought that she was dealing with so much craziness around her mm-hmm. that my my takeaway wasn't really so much that she was crazy as much as she was you know, in this world of insanity. Just so much pressure. Of the, um, the Product me- of her environment. Yes. The, yeah. the, the Me Too ballerina coach, mm-hmm. the crazy mom, the friend giving her ecstasy and whatnot. Yeah. I, I mean, I get it. But to me, it, but it, she, she, her character to me was more. Sure. 
was sucked into this I, and I looked at anyone it, would go crazy. I looked at it from an artist perspective and what you have to do to yourself to get to the level you think you need to be at. So mm -hmm. like I look at someone like you, Dave, who has dedicated your entire life. You have just tirelessly gone after, you know, being an artist to you. What did this did this movie speak to you at all in terms of mm -hmm. what Natalie Portman's character actually did to reach peak in her mind? What was the top of the mountain. Interesting. I mean, I've removed fingernails. I mean, if you look at my fingernails, uh, this one's bleeding right now. Actually, this is about to come off. This it's, one's loose. It's actually bleeding. Give it out of the Eat them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, but there there is a lot of pressure. And I, I thought that that was the horror of uh, mm -hmm. expectation that that you don't always see in in horror movies. Uh, the the pressure to be what you envision yourself to be. And and sometimes in this, like she had she had spent her whole time trying to perfect uh, her her dancing. When what Vincent Cassell's character wanted was her to deconstruct that and do a you know a more raw version of of herself. And that that was what she says. Natalie Portman's character at the end of the movie, I was perfect. Mm -hmm. She achieved it. Mm. You know, at the ultimate cost. I would argue that all of these movies essentially come down to the personal body horror of expectation, feeling insecure, worrying about what you're looked like, other people constantly judging you. I mean, the first thing you see is what someone looks like. And that's, I'm not even saying that that's a, a, a bad thing. I think that's just something that everyone deals with, even people that to us might look gorgeous or whatever. Everyone is constantly worried about what everyone else thinks mm. about what they look like and what their body is like. And to me, that's why the genre of body horror resonates you know, so much mm. with so many people is because we can kind of all share that to whatever degree. And now it's time for the horror movie news. Just when you thought the news couldn't get any worse, we are here to make it so. All right, so this week, Trent sent me a nice article uh, that I went down the rabbit hole on today. But basically, there is a documentary coming out soon on March 17th called uh, Facing East. Uh, Tommy Baker directed it, and it is about a cemetery in Louisville, Kentucky, where it's a 28-acre property where they have 16,000 grave sites, but they have documentation of 138,000 bodies. So basically what they've discovered is that the people that were running the cemetery were reusing graves. So if you were poor and needed somewhere to bury your loved one, they would take your money and basically bury your loved one on top of somebody else's loved one over and over again. Because how you get to 138,000 bodies in a 28-acre uh, space uh, blows my mind. Um, the real kicker is that when this was finally discovered and somebody working for the company that ran the property uh, whistleblowed, um, charges were brought, but nobody was ever actually prosecuted for anything. They were all allowed to walk away. In fact, the actual city of Louisville, Kentucky disowned the property. The companies that were running it disowned the property. It is now kept up by volunteers. Uh, the documentary maker, Tommy Baker, uh, who is one of them. Um, it's all old veterans and people in the community that just want to keep this up because they know 
uh, that there are so many displaced and um, what's the word I'm looking for? No, I don't know what the word is. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. And this is this is obviously um, mostly lower income. I, I feel like is it is it that people who have been buried and then presumably all of their loved ones are gone that they reuse those grave sites uh, it started as that so there's something called pauper's graves so back in the 1800s this wasn't illegal you could if you were just someone that died um and nobody knew who you were they would literally just like dump you into a mass grave um so what they think and i can't wait to see this documentary is that this company was like you know what we could just keep doing that so a, a whole bunch of transients, people that got a disease or or whatever, um, would be dumped in these mass graves. But then they figured out, you know, so Jay, you buy this plot and you die. So you get buried there. Well, then Trent passes away and he gives them money. Like, I want to buy a plot. Which is expensive. And it's, they, it's, not, it's, it's not free to die. And no, get buried. no, 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 not at all. It's horrible. And then they basically say, you know what? We're going to go ahead and bury Trent in Jay's same plot. So they wow. bury Trent on top of you, and then they do that tens of thousands more times. How do they get away with tombstones? Because who is going That's to call them on it? It's very poor people. Um, uh, it's yeah. all like local, okay. local so income, income people. People of color. One of the craziest things about the trailer was uh, I think it was a, an employee or a past employee was saying, we were literally being paid to move skulls and oh, bones so and that get them out of the way so that nobody them. would see this. So they're unearthing yeah. bodies. Yes. What's they're the name of this documentary? Facing East. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they would so put it's like, Eastland yeah. Cemetery in Louisville. Yeah, Kentucky. they put like sheets over, like tarps over the bones. And so when people would be there burying their, they wouldn't see the old the, bones all the, that all were the in there. the skeletons that yeah. are there that they're shoving. Oh. Mm -hmm. And they also they also this. got into a relationship with I think the U University of, of Kentucky or Louis whatever, where cadaver bodies are actually by law you're supposed if you donate your body to science you're supposed to be buried in a very humane way intact. So mm -hmm. if UJ donated your body to science at UMaine Orono or wherever we have a medical school I don't know what I'm talking about, um, you would be buried intact. Well, it huh. was discovered that this cemetery was signing up for all these relationships with medical cadavers and basically burying them in pieces. Right, so they're so, being shoved in there too. They were mm -hmm. talking about finding like literally like a fast food bag or something that had like 26 toes in it. I've always thought to myself about graveyards and and wondered how it's a sustainable, not business, business is the wrong word, but well, like it is a practice, but it is a business, but like just, just the practice of burying people in a graveyard, like the, the math doesn't add up. There's, there's more there's, dead people there's than more there dead, are alive people. Exactly. There's more <laughs> dead people than alive people. I heard yeah. some statistic that there's uh, more dead people on Facebook now than alive people recently, yeah. which is wow. morbid. I believe that. But, uh, yeah. um, but yeah, like how is it sustainable that you see these massive graveyards and there's all these gravestones and people who've been buried there and it's like, yeah, because well, a guy has to go out there before the ceremony and make sure the skulls aren't showing from uh, I the mean, last person. It's definitely suspicious, for sure. So I believe that's crazy. I can't wait to see that. I've always wanted to be launched into the atmosphere. It seems like the perfect place to put dead bodies. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you what know, happens you, when you come down? Well, you wouldn't, though. You'd yeah, be is that how gravity you'd works? You'd freeze. Yeah. I, I think just the, disintegrate. 
I think the atmospheric spaces would disintegrate you. I, to me, to be I honest, if I idea. can like just do like a quick take, I don't need some place. I don't want to be buried. laid Hell to no. rest. No way. Yeah. I don't want to take up any real estate. Like, just mm. burn me up. If you want to wear some of my ashes around your neck, great. Thank Throw you. Me in the but trash. I'm not gonna know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, just fucking burn me yeah. up. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I don't want to take. Anymore. It. What's what's the purpose? It's too many bodies. <laughs> yeah. That's the real body horror. If you see your bodies taking up space. <laughs> Time to gone, go. Man. Time to go. Yeah.